Okay, we invite you back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. This is our uh, foundational text for this subject of the Church Covenant series. And a very fitting one it is. I personally don't think we could have chose a better one because it speaks exactly about what covenanted together means. And so I hope you already appreciate the blessing of being covenanted together in the Lord's assembly. And uh, we'll continue to do so as we go through these messages. Let's read Acts 2 and 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And that is the church at Jerusalem from the first chapter. Our series is dealing with the church covenant. And as I've told you, it is a biblical covenant. If it was not, we wouldn't have it in here and we wouldn't be trying to abide by it but it is based upon the teaching of Scripture. So we have covered the first paragraph, and we completed that last week. Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. And so I want you to identify that paragraph as such. This is how that paragraph describes how we got here. Okay? Start to finish. That's how we got here. The second paragraph tells us what we are to do here. Okay? And so uh, these things are laid out in a nice order. And so again, it's grace that got us here. And it's grace that works in us to be obedient to the things that are in the second paragraph. So let's read that. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge holiness and comfort to promote its prosperity and spirituality to sustain its worship ordinance discipline and doctrines to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry the expenses of the church the relief of the poor and the spread of the gospel through all nations we want you to observe just briefly here how that the remaining four paragraph all begin with we engage. We have that there, okay? And we'll talk more about that as we define that today and what that means, but of course, that's very obvious. Uh, you know, first of all, notice also, I love the way the grammar is. In, chap in paragraph two, we engage. In the third paragraph, we also engage. In the next paragraph, we further engage. And then finally, we moreover engage. And that is very proper and chronological grammar. And it fits just perfectly. So, second paragraph today is what we are to do here. We are all here by God's grace, covenanted together. Uh, one aim, one motive, one purpose. And God uh, has brought us here for a purpose. And the Bible defines that. It's in Second paragraph, that's what we're going to talk about today. What we as a church are to do. And of course, when I say that, 
That's what it says, is we collectively. But we means nothing except I. Okay? It is so easy to forget our personal responsibility when we speak in the third person. That's why I gave you church covenants with I in every place we appears. Okay? So we never happens unless I, okay? And when all of us have the attitude of I, guess what? We've got a good we then. So that's the only way possible. And I say that because, again, the devil is wily. You know, it's so easy to lose yourself in we. Everybody else can be doing everything and you can just be tagging along or a knot on the log and it's we. And that's very peaceful and that's very blissful and you're contributing nothing. No, it's like the whole thing depended on me. Okay? So when we take it personal, we got a good we in that respect. And today, what we begin with here in really the first sentence, it's not even a full sentence, but we're going to go to the semicolon. We engage therefore by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. This is the foundation for everything else that's not only in the second paragraph, but that's in the rest of the church covenant. Bottom line, hear me now, if we don't get this right, there's no need to go any further. It's a total waste of time. It'll be a complete flop, complete failure. This is where it starts. So this is, again, very accurate and very biblical. If we don't perform the things in that first phrase, as they are stated, nothing else will get done. Nothing else will be happening. It will all be superficial. It won't amount to nothing. It won't glorify the Lord. It's not going to sanctify us, etc., etc., etc. There are in the second paragraph five twos, if you notice that. To walk, to strive, to promote, to sustain, and the fifth one there is to the support, but it's really within a different phrase, so it's not separate and distinct from, it's just within the phrase of to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry. So it, it has to be there to make sense. But the others start something new each time. To walk together, to strive for advancement, to sustain something, and to contribute. Okay? So those are very unique. So the first one today, to walk together in Christian love. And although therefore does not begin the paragraph, it is there. So we want to deal with it first. It would be the same as if we read, therefore we engage. And therefore, of course, you know what that means. Always look to what goes before. What went before? The first paragraph. So if the first paragraph hadn't happened and brought us all to here by the grace of God in the way that he did, there would be no therefore. But therefore means that's not the end of it. There's more. There's more. So again, the paragraph is telling us what we are to do collectively as a church since we are here and members of the body of Christ. Okay? And really we could sum that up again by saying uh, the two scriptures in Philippians we told you about last week. For it is God, you know, 
that causes us to will and to do of His good pleasure. It is God that began a work and will finish it. Well, let me just say to you and remind you very briefly again that God doesn't begin a work in one place and leave it to itself to finish it. No, that verse is saying He starts it and He finishes it. And no Christian finishes or is a finished work or is a mature Christian outside of the Lord's church. Now the devil will try to deceive you that that can be done outside the church. But let me assure you on the authority of God's word, it can't. The church is here for that very reason. That you and I as Christians can be sanctified. You don't need to be evangelized and neither do I. We've already been saved. We're here for the purpose of sanctification and our sanctification will be the basis for our evangelism and carrying out the commission. How can you preach or teach or or promote a sanctified religion, faith, or gospel if you yourself are not sanctified. That was the problem with the Pharisees. It's just hypocritical. So Christ said when He prayed for His sheep, and literally praying for His sheep is praying for His church because there is no church without sheep in the church. In John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them through Thy Word. Thy Word is truth. Okay? Okay, where are you going to get at it? Get that at. You're not going to get that on every corner of the world's religion. No. You've got to find the church that's a pillar in the ground of the truth. And really you don't find it. The Holy Spirit finds it for you and brings you there and puts you here just like we said last week. So this is the place where Christ is exalted. God is glorified. The Holy Spirit meets with His people. And we are sanctified. So it is the therefore. We're moving forward as a body of Christ. Every member necessary that God has put here. And I think a lot of people, this is lost today, I believe. I mean, mean, a lot of Christianity, you know, this join the church of your choice does. Just go anywhere and get what you can get. Well, that's like saying buy a hamburger at McDonald's or buy one at Wendy's. It don't really matter. You can get mayonnaise on one or mustard on it. You know, just suit yourself. That's garbage. That is garbage. The church has been put here for our sanctification, the Lord's glory, our edification. Ephesians 4 makes that very clearly. Why they were apostles, why there are prophets, why there are pastors, why there are teachers. The church is here for the edifying building up of the people of God that we might be unified. You know, it's hard to unify a bunch of children unless you've got a pocket full of candy, isn't it? You know, I mean, you're not going to unify them around discipline or instruction or stuff like that. Well, guess what? That's exactly what churches do. They hand out candy to unify people rather than truth. The unity and the basis of our unity is to be truth, to be brought together. And as we grow in knowledge and in truth... We are therefore unified and more cemented together, not blowed about by every wind of doctrine. 
If you're a weak Christian, a new convert, or an immature Christian, and you hear something on the job site or from a friend or a family member, and you think, well, that sounds pretty good, and you bring it to the church and start sharing it with other church members when it's not biblical, you're doing more harm than good. You may think you're doing good. People, people make this error. The devil loves this. This is how he gets the tares in the wheat, you know. And it's not the mature Christian that's going to bring it in. It's the feeble Christian, the weak Christian, that has not properly learned or been taught to discern the Word of God and recognize that don't sound right. I'm going to check that out before I share that with everybody, you see. But the devil loves to bring false hearsay, sound good stuff, get that seed in the church, share it with somebody else. Guess what? Then you got some mature people that are saying, well, that ain't right. And these immature people are saying, well, it sounds pretty good to us. And then guess what? You got a little group here, you got a little group there. And off we go. And man, the devil loves it. And it works wonders. You know? I mean, he divides churches over stuff like that. So again, therefore, we're here with a purpose. We're here because of God's grace. And we are here to be unified based on truth that we may grow, that we may edify, we may exhort and glorify the Lord. So it's all a grace, continuing grace. We're being taught by grace. We're being instructed by grace while we're here. Therefore, so then we come to the we engage. And again, personally, each of us, it is I engage. This little word has, wow, all kinds of definitions and applications. And uh, again, it's not our normal way of defining it, the way we use it in our society. But the whole idea here of is we engage or I engage literally is referring to a pledge. And so let's just remember in school, I don't know if they still do today, but we pledged allegiance, didn't we, to the flag in the United States. Okay, that's what we're talking about. You know, we stood up, we put our hands on our hearts, and we made a pledge, right, of allegiance. Well, that's exactly what this is saying. Therefore, or are we engaged, therefore, we're making a personal pledge. And when we all make it personal, then we've made a church pledge or a collective pledge, not only to the Lord, but to one another. And so the idea of the word engage or to pledge here is literally to bind oneself. When you pledge something, you are binding yourself to a duty, a promise, an obligation of some sort, right? I mean, they had pledge drives on the radio and pledge drives for this and that, right? And, and you're calling in saying, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, you're making a commitment or an obligation. It even is defined in the same way to make yourself liable. It's like when you go into debt, you know, when you get a loan. Well, you're pledging when you sign on the bottom of that by law to pay that debt. You're under obligation legally. So that's the type of pledge. It's not just a casual thing. Because as we get down into this, uh, you know, we already said in the first paragraph, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly. So this is like standing up, you know, in an inaugur in inauguration of the president 
or taking a pledge when you're a serviceman in the military or what have you. So bottom line is it's a commitment. Okay? It is a commitment. We have committed ourselves already to the Lord and in this assembly we're committing ourselves to everything this church is about and to one another in that respect. It's very similar to taking wedding vows. You know, because you're pledging or vowing under duty, under obligation, willingly, etc., etc., to fulfill certain things. So that's what it is. So that's a big word. It's carrying a big definition. A lot of duty, a lot of obligation, and again, we should be fearful of making it with no intention of performing it. Okay? Because it's in all four of the other paragraphs. There for emphasis. Okay? Lest we forget. And again, that's what's going to go up there is lest we forget, you know, because we need to be reminded. Next thing it says that we make this pledge, this commitment, this obligation, before we get to the two, by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now we've already covered that we are all saved, baptized members of this body. That means you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Since your conversion, you have had the presence, the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So we don't have to go looking for Him. We already have Him abiding in us, indwelling us. What we need is His power. His strength, His ability, and as we talked about last week, His instruction and guidance. And the best way to get that is just deny yourself. If we empty ourselves, the Spirit of God will fill up the void, if that's our desire. Now, I remember a long time ago preaching on this. It's hard not to be, uh, go back to there now because I enjoyed it so much. And it's a vivid reminder. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Well, I'll just be brief. You can't be full of you and full of the Spirit. Empty yourself and you'll have room for the Spirit. But if the jar's full of you, I'll be blunt. There ain't no room for the Holy Spirit. He's there, but in minimal presence, power, strength, and capacity. But as we deny ourselves and open up to Him then we have his power presence. And we recognize literally as Jesus said in John 15, these things that are in this paragraph and in this covenant, we can't do none of them by ourselves. I mean, Jesus said that. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Well, Jesus is not here. He's at the right hand of the Father, but guess who is here? The Spirit indwells us. He is here by the earnest of the Spirit. So we just need to be reminded of that simple thing. Without me, you can't do nothing. We're called to do all kinds of things, but not in and of ourselves. So by the aid of the Holy Spirit, oh, may that be something we grab hold of and not let go of and don't let go of it as we go through this covenant. God calls me to this, but I can't do it on my own. I need His power, His strength to do this. What are we to do? To walk together in Christian love. Very simple, isn't it? Very simple statement. What does it mean to walk together? Ooh, it means a lot of things. But to begin with, a scripture comes to mind 
with those two words walk together from Amos chapter 3 and verse 3. And I'm going to turn there and read it. The verse is very simple. I could quote it, but I want to read the two preceding verses there in Amos also that kind of sets up that verse. Amos chapter 3 verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up out of the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore will I punish you for your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And of course the idea here is that unless God and the children of Israel are on the same page, there's not going to be no fellowship, there's not going to be no blessing, there's not going to be any unity. And God had told them what to do and God had blessed them and what had they done? They had sinned against Him. So the unity was broken, the fellowship was broken. And he's saying here, can two walk together except they be agreed? And that's very simple and we understand that, don't we? People live their lives either in agreement or in disagreement or being in agreement and falling out of agreement. I mean, that's life. It's going to happen. Agree and disagree in that respect, you know. But the bottom line is the togetherness, the walking together only happens when there is agreement. Well, we covered the agreements last week, didn't we? The things that we have in common that bind us together. So, I'll say this. Get it. There is no reason why Christians should not be able to walk together. Of all people on the earth that have all kinds of things in common, that unite them and walk together, again, nothing supersedes Christians being in agreement. Because again, what binds us is so much bigger and better and deeper than what binds everybody else. We shouldn't be surprised when people fall out over politics or if people fall out over sports or people fall out over an election or people fall out over something in the family. And, and I mean, because it's on superficial, trivial stuff anyway. Many of them fluctuating. And people change ideas and people change opinions and people think this is right and then they decide that's right. And so all kinds of disagreements for all kinds of reasons. But when it comes to Christians and the Bible, there's no room for disagreement. If we disagree, we need to be in prayer about it. Because this only says one thing. If you're taking it one way and I'm taking it another way, it's still just saying one thing. One of us is wrong. And we hope in this life we can find out where the error is and correct it. But there's some things we're never going to get it all sorted out. But we've got to be in agreement on the major thing. So, walking together in agreement. Well, again, I'm not going to rehash all the stuff we are in agreement in from last week. But when we're talking about walking and walking together, to walk, literally we're talking about our life, our conduct of life, our manner of life, how we live. Uh, the Bible in many places in the New Testament refers to this as your, uh, what is it, your conversation. And it's not talking about what comes out of your mouth, words. It's talking about your behavior of life. Let your conversation be holy and blah, blah, and blah, blah, Right? I mean, so your manner of way of life, uh, what motivates you, 
uh, how you do things, how you go about do things, your attitude, your perspective, your goals, your motives, the things you do for the reasons you do them, the things you don't do for the reason you do them. And again, when we talk about walk, again, that's a broad term. All kinds of things are in walk, right? I mean, a person walking is on a course, aren't they? Now, it could be the right course or wrong course. It could be the broad road or the straight and narrow. But if they're pursuing it, they're walking, they're moving. Again, movement, walking, not standing still. There's movement in it. There's a course. There's direction. It can be that way, this way, or that way. You know, uh, there's speed involved. As Paul said about running the race, there's a motive to cross the finish line. Uh, you know, a destination in mind. So walk means a lot of things. I mean, you know, you walk with purpose, don't you? People can walk in random. People can walk knowing where they're going. People can walk not knowing where they're going. People can be in a hurry to get there. People cannot be in a hurry to get there. People, you know, and we say that a lot of times, they're just walking through life. They don't know where they're going. They don't know. Well, that, so many things about walking. And we need to think about those things because biblically, walking means moving forward. It means following Christ. It don't mean standing in one place. It means advancing. It means uh, we're leaving things behind, right? I mean, anytime you're moving in one direction, you've got stuff behind you. Surely you've got stuff in front of you. So, so again, we're leaving the past. We're moving into the future. Uh, again, and all this is talking about where we walk, how we walk, why we walk. <laughs> you know, all of that comes in here. And really, let me give it to you in brevity. It's just like Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Pilgrim's Progress was a what? A pilgrimage. His walk of life with a destiny, with a purpose. And it's going to have turns and temptations and things. And the Bible is our instruction manual about how to walk, isn't it? I mean, Christ said it concerning the sheep. You know, my sheep will follow me. What's that mean? Follow my teachings, follow my commandments, follow the scripture. And to the child of God, that's our ultimate goal. Above everything else, we want to follow Christ because we want to please Christ. Because he loved us, gave himself for us, and we love him because he first loved us. That's it. Everything else comes after that. We want to please the master above all things. And to follow Christ, you've got to do what Christ says. We live in a day where people just talk about loving Christ, loving Christ, loving Christ, and not doing anything for That's hogwash. How much we love Christ, as he said, is manifest by how much we obey Christ. I think we read the scripture to you last week. John 15, 10, If you, love me, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Do you think Jesus loved the Father? I mean, how much in the Gospels does it tell us about that? How much was he submissive? What was his motive? What was his will above everything else? He didn't care if he pleased anybody else or not, but his will was to please the Father above all things. Wasn't it? That's our desire. The same thing should motivate us in that right, in that respect. How are we to walk? Well, here it is. In love. In love. Love for him. 
And this is important that we get this right. The Bible teaches from the beginning in the Old Testament that we're to love God first and supremely and then our neighbor as ourselves. Is that not correct? That is exemplified in the Ten Commandments, the first four Godward, the other six neighborward, if you'll allow me to say that. Now, I say that because a lot of... Uh, a lot of Christianity and churches and what have you can have love for one another and yet leave their first love for Christ. Well, then you're going to have all kinds of problems. If we put our love for one another, in other words, before we put our love for the Lord, you know what we're going to do? Instead of being a church, we're going to become a social club. You see where I'm coming from? The foundation of love is that I love the Lord above everybody else and you love the Lord above everybody else. And when we get that right, guess what? We can love one another without any problem whatsoever. As long as it is secondary and not primary in that respect. Now, I want to read you some scripture just because I want you to see the repetition of loving and walking. And this goes back to the Old Testament and I'm sure you're familiar with it but it won't take me long to do it. In Deuteronomy, four times Moses said this. Chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Notice the connection of those things. 11th chapter, the very next chapter, verse 22. For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways. So again, keeping the commandments or being obedient is synonymous and reflective of loving the Lord. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and cleave to Him. Over to the 19th chapter and verse 9. If thou shalt keep all these commandments to do them which I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God and to walk ever in his ways, then thou shalt add three cities more for thee besides these. And finally in the 30th chapter and verse 16. Similarly we read. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgment, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. And I read these for repetition because, again, Moses read it, said that four times in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, you think, well, why wouldn't one have been sufficient? Because he's emphasizing the point. And remember, God is speaking through Moses. And the bottom line is to love the Lord is to walk with the Lord. To love the Lord is to be obedient to the Lord. You can't walk. You can't be obedient if you don't love the Lord. Love the Lord causes us to be obedient. And there's no separation of the two. That's my point. It shows up again and Joshua said the same thing. The successor to Moses in Joshua 22 and verse 5. Well, we come to the New Testament and guess what? It's there also. Surprise, surprise, huh? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, here's what Paul says. In fact, verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love 
as Christ hath loved us and hath given himself for us and offered in sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then finally, John says it in the little book of 2 John and verse 6, which have borne witness of thy charity before their... Uh, I'm sorry, 3 John. 2 John, and this is love. Now, John had a way of putting it, didn't he? This is love that ye, we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that ye have heard from the beginning. Ye should walk in it. Okay. So, our phrase says we engage therefore by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. And if we don't walk together in love, we walk together in something else, then again, it's not, it's not going to last. It's not going to turn out right. It's not going to be well. It must be in the medium or capacity of love. Christian love. Love for God, then love for one another. And Christ himself, I remind you, I'm repeating myself of things I preached here so much. John 13, 34, 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Love is to be the chief, supreme, and identifying characteristic that we are children of God. Love. I mean, people should not say, well, they're a Christian because they go to church X many times. They're a Christian because they read their Bible. They're a Christian because it. Those things are important and have their place. But what they should be able to see is that we have a love for God. That's why we do those things. We do those things because we love Him and are devoted to Him. It's love that motivates obedience or else obedience is worthless. Else we become hypocrites. And I want to close by reminding you a few things about love from the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read these first eight verses. Or first seven, eight verses. Eight verses. And make a comment or two and wrap this up. 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now I'm not going to go through and I don't have time to detail all the things that are said there. From being generous to being a martyr, whatever it may be. And may I remind you as we look around ourselves today in Christianity, we see so many people trying to achieve a lot of those things. And he said, don't amount to a hill of beans if you don't have charity. If you don't have love, if you don't have that love for God. Now, a lot of those things can be selfish. You know, I mean, a lot of people are very proud of how generous they are, right? Well, only God knows their heart, knows whether they're giving it out of love or whether they want people to be like a Pharisee. And say, what? Everybody watch. Look here. See this big check? I'm putting it in, you know. But the bottom line in those three verses is, when you read that, is the supreme importance of love. Charity. Okay, it's number one. That's it. And Christ said the same thing, John 13, 34, 35. This is it. If you, in other words, if you don't have this, it's like monopoly. There's no need to proceed or go any further because it's all over with. You might as well stop right there. 
If we don't have love, my love for God, your love for God, and then our love for one another, there's we're, we're headed nowhere. Wherever we go without that is nowhere. Paul said that. And Paul had a lot of these things he's talking about here. And he, he more than we, is emphasizing it because he had those a lot of those things. And he said, yet, love is more important than all this. Well, there's a lot of people give their right arm to have one of those things, much less two or three of them like Paul did, and lose the emphasis that love supersedes it all. So the supreme importance of love repeated in those verses. I mentioned to Brenda coming down here this morning. When we first, when I first came to this church to pastor in 1996, I felt compelled. I, I didn't just think of this today. I've thought about it all the year. The first, I think it's three messages I preached at this church was about charity. Because I realized if we don't have that, then we're just spinning our wheels. We're wasting our time. If we don't start off where the Lord says and the Bible teaches churches ought to start, then we don't have no foundation. It's just pie in the sky after that. And so I remember those messages were entitled Charity's Measuring Stick. Just like a yardstick. You can measure everything as a Christian and as a church by love. By love. You don't measure it any other way that I know of. I mean, this is the supreme thing. Well, what about measuring our obedience? Well, if you don't have love, you ain't going to have no obedience. Your obedience is measured based on how much love you have to the Lord. So it all starts with there. All right, the first three verses of supreme importance. The next ones, verses 4 through 7, the characteristics of charity. Fifteen of them, if I've counted correctly, and I'm not going to go and identify all of them, but read them with me and let's notice. What love does. No wonder, no wonder it's such a great thing. You realize there's, there's nothing else we could put here that could probably do half of these things? Or maybe two or three? Yet love can do 15 of these. It does what you and I can't do, I'll tell you that. Suffereth long, long suffering thus. It is kind. It's hard not to make a comment on that. This culture has this thing about these signs now. Be kind. Be kind. That's so cheap. When people put it out there that have no love for God, don't enter the doors of the church house, don't read the Bible, it's a joke. And I'm just going to say it. It's a joke. The culture can't be kind one to another. They don't know how, and they don't have the ability. If you're a child of God, you know what kindness is all about. And shame on you and shame on me if we're not kind as Christians. But the world's not a kind place because it doesn't have kind people in it and it never will. There's some good people out there that can make some good attempts at kindness. But real kindness starts with being the recipient of God's kindness. I'll leave it at that. Charity envieth not. It's not seeking more. It's content with what's there. Charity vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. It's the opposite 
of arrogance, pride, conceit, look at me. Charity can hide in a corner and be perfectly happy, perfectly content. Charity, if you have love for God, you can go unnoticed and it's okay. Hey, it's okay. It's all right. I don't have to have everybody see me, you know. I don't have to everybody see me what I do, you know. If my love for God is real in my heart, that's good enough for me. I don't care if you know it, I don't know it, you know. It don't matter if the world knows it or not. It's there, and the world will know it, because I will be obedient if it's there. So that's, you know, it's there. Does not behave itself unseemly. Boy, do we live in a, in a culture of people that behave unseemly. People don't know how to behave. And there's a very good reason. The Scripture is not a part of our society, our culture anymore. People don't know how to behave. Where did road rage come from? It didn't start with the invention of the automobile. It's here because of the absence of Scripture. People don't know how to treat one another. They're not taught how to treat one another in a daycare, in a home, or anywhere else. It's pitiful what people do. I, I won't tell you. I mean, you see it probably like I do. You drive the roads, you see it. You see what people will do out the window and in the cars to other people. I mean, that's behaving unseemly. Vulgar talk, unseemly. Women talk as vulgar as men today. Women say things I didn't even know what meant as a teenager. I mean, I go on and on here, but, but this is the, our world. Charity seeketh not her own. There again, selfishness. No, no selfishness. Is not easily provoked. Boy, again, people have some volatile tempers and, and like I say, the road trade thing and everything and politics and things don't go my way and somebody gets a cussing and somebody protests and somebody don't like it and they kill them. That happened. You know, people are easily provoked. Because they're selfish. Thinketh no evil. Wow. That's a big isn't it? We're all prone to think evil. What's going to curb evil thinking? Love for the Lord. Love for God's Word. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but boy, people do today, don't they? I mean, look at all the iniquity in the culture, and people are just happy about it. Or like the deal in uh, 1 Corinthians that we were talking about earlier, uh, or Romans even, that you may not participate in it, but you can make jokes and have fun about the people that are doing it. Well, you're a participant. You're an accomplice. When you don't say that's wrong, rejoiceth in the truth. You love the truth? If you love God, you're going to love truth. Can't be otherwise. There will not be an appetite for falsehood. There will not be an appetite what contradicts what Christ said. I mean, take this rightly, but I mean, the number one thing in my life is truth. And that means God, because God is truth, right? You know what I mean? I mean, does, I ask you, does anything in life matter outside of truth? If it's not true, it's worthless. And things that are true are of God. And they're written in this book. <laughs> and so <laughs> there it is. And that's what our lives need to be about. And if they are, then you got the peace and the joy and the blessings that passes understanding. Beareth all things. And there again, long suffering, but the idea of bearing things is able to shoulder it up and bear it. Believeth all things. If God says it, we believe it. Hopeth all things because it gives us hope. And endureth all things. 
15 characteristics of what love is. Well, I don't know if they, they love the Lord. Right here, look, do you, how many of these can you check off? How many can you check off for you? How many can you, you know, this is it. Finally, verse 8 says, Charity never faileth. Just think of that as we close here today. I've got failures in my life. You've got failures in your life. This church has failures. Everything in this world has failures. True biblical love has no failures. The love that God showed to you and me in saving us, no failure in that. 100% success. God's love is pure. God's love is eternal. God's love is immutable. No flaws. No failures. You want some of that? If you're his child, you got some of that. That's it. Never fails. Boy, I don't want to talk about my failures. Do you want to talk about yours? But here is something that never fails. Well, I got this right. It don't matter. Love will overcome it. Well, yeah, but no. Love, love is sufficient. It can conquer all. It can bear all. It can rejoice in all. It can do all. But you've got to have the right kind. It's got to be God's love. It's got to be the love of Scripture. And as I say at every wedding I've ever done, probably not going to do any more. It is a sacrificial love or it is not the love of the Bible. It's not the world's love. Knows no failure means fall out of, fall down from, or fall off. Love doesn't do that. If God's love did that with us, we'd be saved, we'd be lost. Christ's work would not be complete and finished if we could lose it, fall from it, but we can't. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. God's love for us. One thing we do need to do about true biblical Christian love and that's because of the flaws in ourselves is we need to cultivate it. We have it. Just like we have the Holy Spirit. But are we going to grieve it or are we going to cultivate it? How much did you love your wife when you married her? How much did you love your husband when you married her? How much do you love them now? See what I mean? Does love grow? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of us. Weed some things out and make some more room for it, like the Holy Spirit, you know? I mean, we cultivate this blessing, this treasure. It is the foundation for success or failure. The failure is our part. Love knows no failure. And it is to be always for the Lord first, then for others. If you get that wrong, it's not going to work. But in the church, that's the way it's to be. So we engage to walk by the aid of the Holy Spirit in love. God help us to do that.